Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you to Pastor Dwayne and to John and the team here for uh, having me. It's a real pleasure to be part of your morning worship uh, today, as well as to have been with uh, uh, some of you last evening as well. It's good to be here with my son, Isaac, who will be uh, on the book table at the end. Before we begin, why don't we just pray together? Our Lord and our God, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God of your servant Joseph, who you raised up in Egypt, God of Moses, who you raised up as a deliverer, God of Elijah, who you gave victory over the prophets of Baal, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Open our eyes to receive and to see, to understand your word this morning. Open our hearts to receive what you would say to us. Let your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we heard uh, Exodus 4 read to us uh, this morning. Moses is encountering God at the burning bush. And the Lord is revealing to Moses something of the awesomeness of his name, Yahweh. And in that burning bush where this encounter takes place, Moses is also learning that although the people of Israel are in captivity... And they're under threat and they're being tried and persecuted. Just like that bush is burning but it isn't consumed, so God's people in the midst of the fire of trial are not consumed. But in this passage, Moses is learning a bit more about God's calling upon his life and what God is requiring of him. And the ultimate goal in view, we actually learn uh, from Exodus 4, is that God's people would be liberated, would be freed to honor, worship, and serve him in the earth. And really, over this weekend, that's what I wanted to consider with you, both last night and this morning, is the calling to serve God, what it means to live in freedom as God's people so that we might serve him. And so we're going to consider this passage this morning under a number of heads. We've had it read, but these are the headings this morning. Three signs, two objections, and freedom for the people of God. Three signs, two objections, and freedom for the people of God. Now, hopefully, when you heard Exodus 4 this morning, not everything in there was new to you. You know something of the history of Moses and his story, but we can review it just a little bit. Up to this point in his life, Moses' actions have basically been self-motivated. You'll recall that his mother hid him from the infanticide of Egypt and put him in a basket. He was 
taken into the house of Pharaoh by a princess in Egypt. He grew up in the palace, but he knew his origin. He was actually nursed by one of his, uh, actually by his mother, Um, and he knew his origin. He knew who he was as uh, an Israelite, and one day he rose up in his own strength and he slew an Egyptian. He fled from Pharaoh at that point to save himself. And where we find Moses now is actually as a married man. He's married the daughter of Jethro. And he's tending sheep to make a living for himself, for his father-in-law. He's gone from a, a prince in the palace in Egypt to a shepherd out in the desert Somebody who wanted to help his people, which is why he killed the Egyptian. And he's got this urge still in him to help his people. But there's absolutely no solution in sight. Forty years in a desert, working as a shepherd. Until he encounters this burning bush. One day in the wilderness. And all this time, God has been teaching Moses to wait. That's a difficult thing, isn't it, as a Christian, to be taught by God to wait a long time. I mean, in, in, in our reckoning, Moses is now a relatively old man. And God has been teaching Moses in the wilderness that he has to wait because his own strength has to be broken. And he has to learn reliance upon God. And that's what's been going on with Moses. His own strength has to be broken and he has to learn reliance upon God. Now, if you actually... Look back at chapter 3, verse 10. You see that actually he knows he's being sent to Pharaoh as we encounter him now, but he has no idea how this is going to play out. He has no idea that God is going to work a mighty deliverance or how he's going to do it. All he knows is that God himself is going to do miracles. And it's not going to be Moses and Moses' strength that is going to deliver the people but it's going to be God. And so Moses has all kinds of questions and doubts and fears. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? He'd fled Egypt for his life. Egypt was the greatest empire of the then known world. The pharaohs were the greatest leaders of the known world. Their power and might was unchallenged. And Moses was a sheep herder. It's interesting, and we'll come to it in a moment, that his first objection, though, does not concern the Egyptians primarily. His, his fear at this point, as he stands there before the burning bush, is that his own people will be cynical. That God's people will be cynical. It's actually a common feature of Scripture. It's a common feature of church history. 
that frequently those who claim to be God's people are the most resistant to God's prophets. Are most rebellious. When Jonah eventually gets to Nineveh, for example, the heart of the Assyrian Empire, they repent. When Nebuchadnezzar finally hears the word of God, he repents and comes to his right mind and declares the kingdom and reign of God. But it's the stubborn people of Israel that Moses is most worried about. And this was true, of course, for Christ and the apostles. The Jewish people, the Jewish nation themselves were stiff-necked in heart and in ears. Look at the resistance that they faced in the end. Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. Well, to prepare Moses for what lay ahead and to confirm his calling and to meet the concerns that Moses has, God offers three signs, two of which God performs right in front of him there and which are going to be done before the Israelites, we see that at the end of the chapter, and uh, several of which are going to be done in front of the Egyptians themselves. And those signs are the sign of the rod or the staff, the leprous white hand, and the Nile water becoming blood. Now, to understand the significance of these signs, it's important to first understand something of the religious faith of Egypt. If I say to you, what comes to your mind first when I say Egypt? I'm pretty sure I'm going to guess correctly when I say you think pyramids and Pharaoh. Pyramids and Pharaoh. Maybe, you know, if you're sophisticated, a sphinx is thrown in there and the Nile river basin and so on. But, but basically, pyramids and Pharaoh. Well, you think about that for a moment. Their durable permanence. The pyramids are still with us. The reason we think of pyramids when I say Egypt is that the pyramids are still there, or many of them. They were durable. They had a permanence about them. You see, the, the pyramids reflected the religious faith of Egypt. It reflected the religious view of their culture, that it was aligned somehow with the structure of being. They were triangular in shape. They were pointed to the heavens. The, the Egyptians held that the universe was a static realm without change. A static realm without change. And the pharaohs were gods within Egypt. One social commentator put it this way, in challenging Egypt's faith, God struck at the world of nature. Suddenly, nature became to the Egyptian mind perverse and undependable. This fact struck at the foundations of Egyptian life and religion. Egypt's certainties became uncertainties. When you think about the plagues upon Egypt... Suddenly, everything that to the Egyptians seemed completely certain in their vision of a static world became radically uncertain. So let's consider the first sign 
uh, that is performed. Moses is instructed to throw the rod, the shepherd's staff, on the ground as he's standing there in front of this bush. And when he does, it becomes a serpent. It becomes a snake. And then he's instructed to do the thing that you should never do with a serpent, and that's pick it up by the tail. So he takes his staff. He's a shepherd, remember? He takes the rod, the staff, and he throws it on the ground, and naturally he runs from it. And who wouldn't? And then he's told, pick that serpent up by the tail. When he does so, it becomes a staff, a rod again in his hand. What does that mean? Well, the rod in the Bible, the staff, is a symbol of power and authority. The shepherd's staff in Scripture is a sign, ultimately, of Christ's authority over the nations. He is the great and the good shepherd. Psalm 2, in particular, Revelation 2.27, is about Christ ruling the nations with a rod of iron. You know, the uh, leaders of the great empires of the ancient world frequently depicted themselves as shepherds of their people, holding the shepherd's staff. So the rod in Moses' hand is a sign of divine power. It's a type of divine power, which in the good shepherd's hand is one of godly authority, care, tenderness. But power and authority wielded outside of the hand and rule of God changes character. Outside of the hand of Moses as God's shepherd, it becomes a serpent. It's diabolic. The scriptures say in Psalm 94, 20, Can a corrupt throne be your ally? A throne that makes evil laws. The snake actually had an important place in Egyptian mythology. It had a prominent place, actually, on the front of Pharaoh's crown because the serpent set forth Pharaoh's power to kill. The snake in this form was a symbol of the goddess Wadjet in Egyptian thought. And like a serpent, Pharaoh was biting and killing God's people. And God is saying to Moses, I'm going to turn him into a dry stick. The godless state, though, becomes a leviathan, a serpent opposed to God. Out of the hands of Moses, it's a serpent. Back in the hands of Moses as God's servant, the serpent becomes again the shepherd's staff. And this powerfully reminds us of Christ, the good shepherd in whose hand is all power and authority over the nations who alone has the authority to rule the nations and in our own time when you think about it the state when it seeks to throw off God's authority exercises authority in opposition to God it becomes serpentine supposed to be a minister of justice God's servant that's what Paul tells us in Romans 13 it's a servant outside of the hand of God it becomes serpentine a dangerous threat to the people of God 
The second sign that Moses receives is the leprous white hand. Now, this one must have been truly terrifying. He's instructed to put his hand inside his cloak, and when he removes it, it's white and diseased and leprous. Then he's told to put it back inside his cloak, and he does so, and when he takes it out again, it's, it's whole, it's cleansed, it's healed. Well, in Scripture, leprosy symbolizes sin and defilement. The leper was somebody separated from society, separated from the people of God, separated from the Lord's house. You recall that Jesus encountered the leper frequently, ringing their bells, saying, unclean. Christ healed the leper, restored them to community, restored them to God's people. Well, diseased and unclean was how Pharaoh was soon to be perceived by his own people. Only God is able to cleanse by his grace and make us a new creation to heal us, to restore us. And even hard-hearted Israel was going to be given a new heart, was going to be cleansed. The third sign that Moses is given is the water turning to blood. Now, This sign isn't performed in front of Moses because they're not at the Nile. They're out in the wilderness. But it was later performed by Aaron before the people. We see that in verse 30 of this chapter. And finally, on a grand scale, it was performed in front of Pharaoh, who hardened his heart before God. What does this sign mean? What was its significance? Was it just a parlor trick? God doesn't do parlor tricks. He's not a magician. He does signs. When you see a sign, a sign is pointing towards something else. When you come to a road sign in England, you don't stop at the sign and say, oh, what a beautiful sign, wonderful sign. Let's stay here and camp by the sign. It's not your ultimate destination. It's a signpost to something. The sign has clear reference to the Hebrew infants who were thrown into the Nile in Exodus 1.22. The God of the Nile, and the Nile was considered a God under the control of Pharaoh, would become putrid and loathsome by being turned into blood. You know why? Because God had not forgotten all the infants drowned in Egypt. All those Uh, male boys, those babies tossed into the Nile that some of the Hebrew midwives preserved. He hasn't forgotten either all the murderous abortions performed in the last 70 years in Britain and in much of the West. And God's judgment doesn't fail. We want to understand actually all the troubles and tribulations coming upon the West right now and upon our own country, all the difficulties and problems, the collapse of human identity, of the family, of our public finances, of the debt, of the criminality, everything that's taking place. We want to understand some of that in our culture where God isn't mocked. And people's professed unbelief in divine judgment in history is irrelevant to God's judgment. 
These are the signs and symbols that Moses is given to assure him of his calling. That God is with him and that he has the power to accomplish the work. Now, Moses isn't turned into a magician. He's given power to accomplish these specific signs by God. But Moses has some objections. It's hard to think, isn't it? How can you have objections after all of that? But Moses has got some objections because he's a human being. And he's a human being like you and like me. He's an ordinary person. We look back at these great patriarchs and great leaders of the Old Testament. We somehow think of them as superhuman somehow. They weren't. They were just like you and me. And at this point, Moses has his doubts. He's had all the empirical evidence he could ever want to trust God and obey him. God's almighty power has just been made manifest right in front of him. He still stood there at a bush that's burning, but not being burned up and consumed. You know, think about this for a moment. God isn't bound by his laws for creation. God's law is a law for creation. Those laws that we talk about as natural laws are simply an expression of God's will, God's purpose. They're simply God's ordinary way of working within creation. But it's actually Christ's powerful word that holds all things together, remember? So a sign, the reason it's a sign, is that it's unusual. It's not God's ordinary way of working. It's not typical. I mean, if, if miracles were typical, they wouldn't be signs, would they? They wouldn't symbolize anything. So this wasn't typical. Signs occur when God does something different from his ordinary way of working. Lepers aren't usually cleansed. The blind don't spontaneously see day to day, do they? Water isn't transformed ordinarily into blood or wine. Dead people don't ordinarily walk out of their graves. That's the power of the word of God, the word who made all things. And the word who made all things was able to say to the wind and the waves, be quiet. Was able to say to the fig tree, you're cursed. Was able to say to the water, become wine. Was able to say to a dead man called Lazarus, who'd been in the grave several days, who stank, whose brain would have been liquid. Lazarus, come out. That's the power of the word of God. That's the authority of Christ, the creator and the redeemer. So Moses now, who's seen these demonstrations from God, his problems aren't intellectual. He doesn't have any ground to question the word of God, but Moses still has excuses. The issue was not evidence, but faith. I've been in the work of apologetics many years, and I can tell you that this is why evidentialism is a failure. It's not that we can't offer evidences to people for the truth of Scripture or the claims of Christianity, but that doesn't convince anybody. 
Paul is clear in Romans 1 that the challenge for the unbeliever is not a lack of evidence of God's divine power. It's that they hold down, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We want to live like we want to live. We want to do what we want to do. And so we make excuses. That's what Paul says. But he says we are without excuse. But we make excuses. Our culture makes excuses. The unbeliever makes excuses. Moses makes excuses. His first objection, what if they won't believe me? I'm scared of the people. From the time that he'd risen up to kill the Egyptian, Moses' self-confidence had been gradually shattered and God is speaking to a man who doesn't have any self-confidence here. But broken people whose hearts are transformed by the Spirit of God, who are ready to walk in his grace and power, can be used for God's victorious purposes. So if you feel like a broken person, a person lacking self-confidence, good, God can use you now. God can use you now. If it's not about yourself and your own self-confidence, God can use you. God had given Moses these signs because his first objection had been, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me? Now think about that for a moment. For a person to believe that they have something important and valuable to say to a rebellious culture, to a rebellious people, to a rebellious generation, takes courage and faith. It comes naturally to nobody. This is not about personality. Oh, Lord, I'm not the right kind of personality. You know, they won't believe me. I'm not very convincing. This is nothing to do with personality. It takes courage and faith to believe you have something to say, to contribute in a culture that is rebellious. And the first thing we ask ourselves when God calls us to speak for him, to act for him, to live for him, is why would anybody listen to me or take any notice of anything I've got to say? I'm just a lonely, isolated voice. Didn't even Isaiah the prophet say, who has believed our report? You think Elijah was a great man of undaunted faith and courage? Even after he defeated the prophets of Baal, he ran away and hid in a cave depressed because a woman was after him. And not for good reason. Speaking to people, you see, even speaking to the church of God, when that church seems determined to ignore God's law word or to tolerate evil and injustice, that can feel hopeless and depressing. And in his leadership of Israel, if you look at the history of Israel and the ministry of Moses, Moses was frequently depressed. In fact, on one occasion, he even asked God to kill him. He was so depressed. But here, God graciously gives Moses signs to go in boldness. And let me suggest to you this morning, because I know we're not Moses, 
God has given all of us every sign in Christ, in the witness of Scripture, in the testimony of the Holy Spirit, to speak his truth with boldness and to obey our calling. Every sign has been given to us. Even the sign of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I don't need to see my hand become leprous in my jacket because Christ has been raised from the dead and I have the testimony of his word and the witness of the Holy Spirit. But Moses has a second objection. It's not just that he's worried about his own people. He says, I'm not eloquent. I doubt my own suitability. Isn't this perhaps the most familiar objection of all to us as Christians? You see, he doubts his own suitability and equipping to be God's instrument. I'm not a quick thinker, Moses says. You need somebody, you need a sharp apologist for this. I'm not a good speaker. Someone else would serve God better. There's a kind of terrifying audacity about this, isn't there? But how often is this our answer when God lays his hand upon us to do something or to speak or to show courage or to act in a given situation? And God's answer, his response to Moses shatters every feeble excuse that we could possibly raise. Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. In other words, what he commissions us to do, he will empower us to fulfill. If God asks you to do it, he's going to give you the grace and the strength to do it, to fulfill it. Are we inadequate? Was Moses inadequate? Yes. That, answer, that, that issue is not in question. We know that. We don't need to tell God that. But God will be with our mouth. That's literally what he says to Moses there in the Hebrew. I will be with your mouth. There's an interesting parallel to this in the words of Jesus to the disciples. He says this. I forgot to move my slide on. Sorry about that. Who is it that placed a mouth on humans? This is what the Lord Jesus said. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves, because people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you should speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour, because you are not speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. That's what's happening in our witness to the culture. That's what's happening in our witness to the world, to our neighbors, colleagues. God is speaking through us. 
Jesus is actually clear that the challenge, that to challenge the rebellion and the oppression and wickedness of a time and culture is difficult and it's a dangerous task. The image of being sent out like sheep in the midst of wolves is not a very comforting one. It's dangerous. Just consider the last few years in England and beyond. Jesus warns them, beware of people. Beware. Think about it. Even those who don't know Christ, who have dared to speak up over the last few years to resist injustice or to speak against the madness of our culture. For example, Lord Sumption, a former Supreme Court Justice, or Kathleen Stock, a logic professor in the UK, or even a a novelist like J.K. Rowling. People who don't even know Christ who speak up to say something are opposed and resisted and no-platformed and so on. If this is what happens to those who don't profess Christ, how much more to those who actually proclaim and defend the gospel of Christ, the law of God, call people to repentance, who call kings and prime ministers and local councils to account in terms of the word of God. In the last few years in Canada, we just moved from Canada after 19 years in Canada. We moved back to England last year uh, in In Canada, some of my own friends, pastors of churches, were thrown into prison. Spent two or three months in jail, arrested on their own doorsteps in front of their own children for continuing to worship God. The threats to Canadian leaders and pastors now that if they exercise their pastoral office and counsel people in terms of biblical sexuality... If they're reported to the authorities, they can go to jail for five years. Over the years, I recall many times actually in my work as a Christian apologist, having to face some of my own doubts and the intimidation of the culture and my sense of inadequacy. On one occasion, I um, I did a number of debates over the years in, in North America, and I sat one day on a platform at a major Canadian university in Ottawa, And I was doing a debate on the existence of God and the student society there, the humanist society, had rented a uh, professor from America and flown him up from America to debate me. And I remember sitting there before the start of the debate. It was a large room. Hundreds of people were there, hundreds, uh, mainly students. But the, the stage the low stage, and it wasn't far from all the front rows. So they packed out this auditorium, and there was a little desk on one side of the stage and another on the other, and a little podium like this in between them. It was about 10 minutes before the start of the debate. And as I looked out, and some of them were as close as John is to me now, and I looked at some of their faces, I was struck by the hostility, by the anger, a certain sense of resentment towards me, and I hadn't even said anything yet. Often these debates, you see, they draw cheerleaders for atheism, for the agenda of the culture. And as I sat there, 
in my heart, I was afraid. And uh, so I, I had some notes. I had my Bible. So I took my Bible. Now, I don't recommend this as your ordinary way of listening to God, but I just thought, Lord, this is a tough situation just to help me. And I opened my Bible, and it fell upon these words. Do not be afraid of their faces. For I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And it was a fantastic evening. And the Lord gained the victory. So the focus of both Exodus and Matthew is on being ready and willing to speak, to act, to depend upon God, whatever our station or whatever our situation, and God accepts, Jesus accepts no excuses. He doesn't accept excuses. And yet Moses, still in doubt, says, please, Lord, send someone else. After everything, But he just doesn't want to do it. And isn't that so human? Lord, I get it, I know, but ask somebody else to do it. Send somebody else. Well, Moses angered God at that point. Said God was angry with Moses. And yet, he's so gracious He's so patient. He's so kind. He accommodates Moses' weakness and he meets him halfway. And he gives him a spokesperson, Aaron, his brother. He says, your brother Aaron, he's a good speaker, isn't he? He's eloquent. So this is what we're going to do, Moses. There's going to be a partnership here. You're going to have a press secretary like the president. Goodness knows he needs one. To somebody to be with his mouth. <laughs> you're going to have a you're going to have a press secretary, Moses, and it's going to be Aaron, and he's going to speak for you. You're going to be as God to him. You're going to have the. I'm going to give you the message, and you're going to communicate that to Aaron, and he will speak for you. We may have different roles and different callings. We're not all called to the same thing. We have different tasks in the kingdom, just like Moses and Aaron. But faithfulness to God's calling is the key requirement. And so God, even in the midst of Moses' doubts and fears, he meets him halfway. And Moses is ordered to take the staff as he represents God as the shepherd of Israel. Look at verse 17. And take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. So the arrangement of Moses and Aaron is used in God's providence to have a very deep impact upon Pharaoh. Why is that? Well, Pharaoh, I'm quoting now, Pharaoh was to the Egyptians the great God. And as such, he spoke to the people through various officials who were his mouth. 
the Lord uses Moses' reluctance to establish an ironic parallel, one which both mocks and challenges Pharaoh. Moses appears before Pharaoh as God's prophet and also instead of God. Like Pharaoh, he has a mouth, Aaron, to speak for him. This was so bold a challenge and one accompanied with supernatural judgments that it restrained Pharaoh's vengeance against Moses and Aaron. Have you ever asked yourself that when you're reading the encounter between Moses and Pharaoh? Why would Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, not have just ordered his guards to take out this sheep herder and have him executed? Well, there was two reasons. This ironic parallel. Here was Moses in the place of God with a mouthpiece, Aaron. Pharaoh never spoke directly. He spoke through, he was a God. He spoke through a mouthpiece. It was for that reason and the accompanying signs that Pharaoh did not dare lay a hand on Moses and Aaron. Now, if you speak up, In our time and culture, if you are faithful, if you act faithfully, live faithfully, speak faithfully, you will be asked to speak for and on behalf of others. We are required by God to speak faithfully to our generation, whatever the cost. Remember what Jesus says? Make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. We have to trust God. So when Moses later met with Aaron in the wilderness, the brothers were ready to speak truth to power. They kissed one another on the mount of God and ready to speak truth to power, just a wooden staff in their hand and the word of God in their hearts. That's all they had. Finally, freedom for the people of God. What was the purpose and the focus of all of this? It wasn't just parlor tricks to impress Moses. This was a preparation. These were signs that something specific would be accomplished. So let's consider in closing Moses' calling in terms of the progress of the kingdom of God. That was the purpose. All these years in the wilderness as a shepherd, all these signs, all this time that he'd spent in the house of Pharaoh and the signs that now God showed him in the wilderness was for the progress of the kingdom of God. That was the goal. And let me suggest to you that everything that God has shown you and revealed to you, brought you into his kingdom, called you out, put you amongst a faithful people, is for the progress of the kingdom of God. Whatever he calls us to do and to say is for the progress of the kingdom of God. So Moses has gone to his father-in-law respectfully and received a blessing to return to Egypt. God assures him that those who had sought his life are now dead. And then at this point, God, God reminds him of the central message he is to give Pharaoh. The signs were to help him accomplish this end. What is the message? Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. 
or worship me. Serve is a better translation. Let my son go that he may serve me. The pharaohs, remember, considered themselves sons of God. Pharaoh thought of himself as a son of the sun god Ra. So this was a direct challenge to his status as well. No, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. And it came with a very stark warning of judgment on the sons of Egypt if Pharaoh refused. Now notice here that the kingdom of God, and this is the critical point, the advancement of the kingdom of God entails freedom for the sons of God. The advancement of the kingdom of God entails freedom for the sons of God. God didn't leave his people in slavery in Egypt. He didn't say, oh, well, it's better if they're persecuted. It's better if they're under the thumb. They'll grow more. They'll love me more. You know, you often hear Christians romanticize persecution. Let me tell you, there's nothing romantic about suffering persecution. There's nothing romantic about losing your head in Iraq for being a Christian. There's nothing romantic about languishing in a jail in China for being a Christian. God may be with you in it. He will be with us in it. He's promised to be with us in it. But there's nothing romantic about it. And when Western Christians glibly, because they will not speak the truth, romanticize persecution, it's because they've never experienced it. My parents served for 17 years in Pakistan where Christians are persecuted. That is not the ideal situation of the church, of God's people. And it never was. It was never the ideal situation. When Peter was in prison, God sent angels to get him out. So, God reminds him, this is the message, let my son go. The account of the Exodus is one of slavery to freedom. This is what we talked a bit about last night, if you weren't here. And this is the story of the entire gospel. Jesus says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. The word of God says that. Peter says, live as people who are free. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. You really will be free. So if the people of Israel are to truly serve God, they need to be liberated to serve the Lord. Do you know that the life of Jesus recapitulated the life of Israel? Jesus is the truly obedient son. You remember what the prophet said? Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Jesus, after his birth in Bethlehem, of course, is taken to Egypt. And then when the danger is over, those that sought his life were dead. He returns. And then he goes through the waters of baptism like Israel through the Red Sea. And when he crosses through the waters of baptism, he goes out into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And there he is tested just like the Israelites were tested. 
And then he goes up onto the mountain like Moses as the greater Moses. And there he expounds the law of God in what we, we call the Sermon on the Mount. And you know when Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration just before the crucifixion, who appears with him? Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And do you know what the Bible says that they spoke about? The exodus he was about to accomplish. The exodus he was about to accomplish through the cross. We just celebrated our Passover. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The whole story of Scripture is bound up with the exodus that Moses and then Christ accomplishes for us so that death passes over and we are led out to freedom. And Jesus is the greater Joshua who leads us on to take the land. The gospel of the kingdom, you see, needed a home from where to spread. That's why God was going to give Israel a place a place where they could receive the covenant law and promises, where they could be a light to the nations, which was their calling in terms of God's rule and reign. So the gospel needed a home from which to spread, where they could be free to serve God. And you know what the scripture says? When they left Egypt, they left a mixed multitude. That is to say, there were Egyptians who believed the word of God and they left as part of the people of God. What a remarkable thing. They left a mixed multitude. So Moses was being sent to liberate God's people so that there would be a people and a place for the law and promises to be believed and applied. And this is why wherever the gospel has gone, it brings liberty. It brings freedom. And when it declines... Oppression and injustice reemerge. When I was uh, reflecting on this message, I was thinking about one of our more bizarre festivals in England, uh, November the 5th, Bonfire Night. And some of you, perhaps more than the younger generation, will know the real meaning of Bonfire Night. Because on November 5th, two things are actually remembered and commemorated. And they were both about a deliverance that happened for England. There was a plot discovered and foiled to destroy the Houses of Parliament. And the reason that was so significant was because it was the seat of Western freedom. It was the citadel of the evangelical faith in 1605. It's also the anniversary of the landing of King William III in 1688 and the glorious bloodless revolution that established religious liberty and freedom. That's why we have bonfire night. Most people have forgotten that, think it's just about setting off some fireworks. But that's what it was about. Charles Spurgeon wrote about this. He said, Our convictions and our love of liberty should make us regard its anniversary with holy gratitude. Let our hearts and lips exclaim, We have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in days of old. You have made this nation the home of the gospel. And when the enemy has risen against her, you have shielded her. By God's grace, you see, England, Britain, was made the home of the gospel. Later, the United States 
Canada. A place for gospel freedom to flourish from there to spread to the rest of the world. This privilege has been squandered and it's being squandered. If the sons of God, the brothers of Christ, the firstborn son are bound up by a serpentine state, freedom and freedom is destroyed for the gospel. There is no longer a people and a place. You see, it's not just about a people. It's about a place. That's why exponents of godly faith and liberty in the face of tyranny, like John Knox in Scotland, his admonition to England developed a theology of resistance, of a preservation of freedom. In fact, Knox argued, sorry, I should have given you this quote from Charles Spurgeon as well. I've just read that. Knox argued that common people had the right and duty to disobedience if state officials ruled contrary to the Bible to do otherwise would be rebellion against God. Knox inspired great Puritans like Samuel Rutherford who wrote Lex Rex or the law and the prince which argued that the law is king and all law must be grounded in the law of God. Christ is the true sovereign whose word must govern. So Francis Schaeffer pointed out, he said, in almost every place where the Reformation flourished, there was not only religious noncompliance, there was civil disobedience as well. There has to be faithfulness in the face of apostasy and rebellion against God. Is it right for us to obey God or men? That's a choice that is increasingly before us in the West. This is why in uh, the last few years, I wrote something in Canada called the Niagara Declaration, which got hundreds of churches to sign concerning freedom for the people of God. And it's it's an appeal to our Christian heritage and in this particular case, Canadian law concerning the freedom of the church. You see, we must be released to worship and serve the Lord. Let my son go that he might serve me. If all the laws move against the Christian church and the word of God, how do you freely serve the Lord? But the gospel involves a people and a place to witness to the nation and to the nations. To obey God and serve his kingdom fully requires the freedom to do so. And if we fail to recognize the importance of that, we fail to recognize the meaning of the gospel. We fail to recognize the meaning of the exodus. Let my son go that he may serve me. And God honors and blesses nations that give free reign to the gospel. Look what the prophet Isaiah said. No weapon formed against you will succeed, and you will refute any accusation raised against you in court. This is the heritage of the Lord's servants, and their righteousness is from me. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, before I conclude with prayer... You may ask yourself, how on earth did he get through a sermon in Exodus 4 and avoid the circumcision at the end of the passage? (laughs) What on earth is that about? 
that God confronted Moses to kill him en route to this task. Well, think about this. The scripture says, judgment begins at the house of God. And all judgment begins with us. Moses is reminded of this. One of his sons wasn't circumcised. We cannot go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and the righteous word of God and expect success if we ourselves are not committed to obedience to his covenant word in our own families. We can't make a faithful witness to the world unless we first live it out ourselves and in the life of the church. You know the reason why we're so weak today in the West, here in Britain, why the church's voice is so weak is because we ourselves are living in disobedience to the word of God. And judgment is beginning at the house of God. That's where it begins. God is no buttercup, friends. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's kind. Look how good he is to Moses, said someone else. But he reserves the right to judge anyone who doesn't respect his covenant. We were reminded of it by John this morning when we came to the Lord's table. That's why we fence the table. What does Paul say to the Corinthian church? He says, some of you are sick, some of you are sick, some of you have died because you have despised the Lord's table. The covenant, the sign, we have two signs of the covenant, don't we? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Moses despised the Lord's covenant in failure to put the sign of the covenant on his own children. Thankfully, he had a good wife. She wasn't very happy about it, but he had a faithful wife. And the Lord spared him, and he went on to fulfill the Lord's purposes. The sign of the covenant needs to be on our own household, that we live and walk in obedience to God, and then he is going to use us, and I believe this, he is going to use his people, even in this land, even when he's working with a remnant, to work a mighty deliverance, a mighty exodus is going to happen through the faithful people of God as we are faithful to the gospel of the kingdom. Let's pray.